Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. On today's show, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 4 contestant and drag legend Dita Ritz. We discuss his time on Drag Race. It was very difficult to have to deal with all of that and not have anybody to protect me, honestly. I didn't feel protected. I felt like I got the opportunity to go on Drag Race and it was great. But once you get out of the machine and you have to go out into the world to like work, it was difficult to do that. Frustrations with how the judges on the show treated him and his drag. I have such a problem with the fact that she told me to lotion up on national television. Her being a white woman, not understanding that what you say to us on that runway sometimes causes a narrative. Like I said that once again, steps into our booking. Now you got me looking like, can this girl bring lotion to the gig? Is she that unprofessional? It would be nice even just to talk to her because I felt like even when that happened, it was disrespectful. No matter even if my knees was ashy or not. Like that's not your place to say that. Regrets. And even I think you can hear it in my voice as I'm talking about it. To be real and honest, it's one of my biggest regrets is not just opening my mouth and asking for help and not caring about what could happen. And getting what's rightfully his. Because my whole thing I've always said is like, fame is cute and all, like I like the idea of famous and being famous, but for me it's about respect and so that's what I've always worked for in this industry. I've never worked for no damn fame or no, no celebrity. I've worked to be respected. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut your mouth, Evan. Oh, yeah, it's gotta say shut up, right? Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, how are you? I am great. Uh, I am excited for the holiday season. Mm. Uh, Hanukkah starts this week, and uh, it's not the same in quarantine, and it's not the same as an adult, but I am the kid who like used to sit on the stairs waiting for my dad to come home who worked late so I could get presents. And like he likes to bring that up, of course, every holiday season, which is very sweet. Uh, but it's just, you know, now it's just me and my spouse, and we're just going to exchange some gifts. And I think we're going to kind of, well, you know, light the candles and everything as we always do. But I think it's going to be more, way more low-key than it usually is just because, you know, we can't really see anyone. Yeah, and I feel like it's the last major holiday that will be like a first within um, – quarantine um obviously there's a number of holidays that take place in january february but in terms of uh holidays with a lot of traditions behind them in terms of uh culturally this is uh one of the last big ones and uh so i think and obviously 
Hanukkah, Christmas, this holiday season is a time of coming together, which um, hopefully will be happening less this holiday season. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But how are you doing? I am well. I, too, am beginning to feel um, something adjacent to the holiday spirit, um, which made me... I was thinking about, like, okay, well, what do we want to talk about today? And I was, like, thinking, you know what? Everyone was talking about that movie, Happiest Season. And I was like, is it too late because it came out a couple of weeks ago? And then I just realized, like, that is such a strange mentality to think that something is suddenly old when it is but a few weeks old. But that's sort of how how I'm made to feel often. And so I want to talk about Happiest Season because... It's so funny. It's not even, we have weeks until Christmas, which is when the movie takes place. The movie came out on Thanksgiving and yet it already feels sort of like we're moving on and I don't want to move on. So we're going to talk about it. So without any further ado. Um, So Happiest Season is an American romantic comedy directed by Buffy the Vampire Slayer alum Clea Duvall, co-written by Duvall and her former Veep co-star Mary Holland. It stars personal shoppers Kristen Stewart, Black Mirror San Junipero's Mackenzie Davis, Scream 4's Allison Brie, Ingrid Goes West's Aubrey Plaza, the Casey Musgraves Christmas Show's Dan Levy, the aforementioned Holland, Legally Blonde's Victor Garber, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape's Mary Steenburgen. It is a joint venture between TriStar, Sony and Hulu, which is to say this is not some small indie, but rather a mainstream film with queer characters at its center. The story, which takes place and was filmed in my hometown, Pittsburgh, concerns the film's nice. prota- <laughs> concerns the film's protagonist, Abby, who is drunkenly invited by her girlfriend, Harper, to come home to meet Harper's family for Christmas. The only caveat, which Abby discovers on the drive there, is that Harper is not out to her family. The double whammy comes when Harper reveals that her parents believe Abby to be Harper's orphaned roommate. Harper's father is running for mayor, and Harper believes her sexuality might risk a scandal in her small conservative hometown. Mind you, Pittsburgh is one of the counties that helped to flip Pennsylvania blue, but that's a conversation for another day. So Harper explains to Abby that she can't come out to her family until after Christmas. Lots of hijinks ensue. Aubrey Plaza shows up as Harper's enigmatic ex, who you think Abby might end up with when she realizes Harper is a psychopath. This is more me editorializing at this point. But in the end, we get a happily ever after when Harper's uptight parents, played by Mary Steenburgen with a blunt cut bob, naturally, and Victor Garber have a come to moment and realize that they need to stop seeking perfection and start accepting each other for who they are. And by each other, I mean the entire family. I don't love this notion as it paints that heterosexuality and conservatism are perfection and somehow we must move out of that that's conversation for another day but needless to say everyone gets a happy ending in happiest season queer co-writer and director queer lead queer stars queer characters queer themes this is one of the first if not the first mainstream queer christmas movie of its heft Necessary shout out to the family stone for its contribution to the canon and even so the film is somewhat controversial for reasons we'll get into in a moment but first matt Happiest season. Did you like it? Uh, that is a <laughs> complex question. Well, no, the question's really simple. My answer is more complex. I mean, I think ultimately, after seeing it through to the end, I did like it. Um, I don't, didn't necessarily love it. But for two-thirds of the movie, I hated it. And I think it's because, and we'll get more into this as we discuss it, I think the first two-thirds have to be rough to... Uh, emphasize the impact of the last third and some of the the conversations it brings up. Um, I'd want to watch it again. I've only watched it once to really kind of let it sink in. But also, I don't feel like it's as funny as it could have been. It was more 
and and I don't know if that's because I'm relating my own queerness to it because a lot of the uncomfortable moments that might be found funny were just uncomfortable to me. But I also don't like The Office for a similar reason. Like I don't like that uncomfortable humor. So it could be that. So I mean, ultimately, I think I did enjoy it. But I have a lot of thoughts on kind of why I have such complex feelings about it. Did you enjoy the movie? I did enjoy the movie, and then, so for those of you that don't know, there's a huge discourse, especially on gay Twitter, about this film, and sort of really picking it apart and analyzing it in a really interesting way, um, because I think what I'm reminded of is that there aren't a ton of queer films, period, that receive this many eyeballs on them for which to be scrutinized. So that alone, right. I think, is like monumental. Did I enjoy the film? No, but I like the film a lot. I will watch it again, and I found a lot to like in it. So kind of, um, it's one of those situations in which I'm really glad this film is made, and it's more of like, God, I wish I had had this script so that I could do different things with it, and that is not a read on Clea Duval, who I think did a completely worthy and adequate job directing this film. I think the premise at its core, as I pointed out when sort of recapping it, is inherently just a little has a lot of holes in it that make it such that I agree with you that that third third does land somewhere, but it's rather unearned. And again, I walked away from the film with like the morality of it being that it's like, okay, you don't need, you know, perfection is, is not worthwhile. Perfection is, is unattainable. And I guess my question, which the film didn't want to grapple with, is like, why is perfection, heteronormativity, and conservatism to begin with? And like, that wasn't excavated at all. And I think a larger question that has been, you know, really prominent on lesbian Twitter, which I've loved watching, is many people feeling like Kristen Stewart's character, Abby, uh, should have ended up with Aubrey Plaza's character. Um, there seemed to be all of this tension between the two of them, and Aubrey Plaza's character seemed to represent someone who was very comfortable in their sexuality and in their personage. And so there was something immediately appealing about her, even from the audience perspective, and seeing someone, you know, it's always, it's often comforting to see someone who is comfortable being themselves, no matter who they are. Um, yeah. And so it's like you wanted that ending, or for me, I should say, for me, I wanted that ending to land that she discovered the toxicity of Harper and Harper's family and the trauma uh, that was invoked on her was not worth it. And here was option B, and option B was going to find her the true happiness. And I think what I didn't like love about this ending was this idea of like it just wrapped itself up really quickly. Harper apologizes to Abby. They kiss. Everything is good. Queerness thrives. That part to me, among other parts, as I just pointed out, made it not an A, but a C plus. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And there, there's also been a lot of conversation I've seen on like Twitter of like straight people going, this is toxic. You have to run away. And I'm like, yes, but also you don't know what it's like to come out or not come out. So maybe don't get involved in that part of the discourse. But that said, like, I think, and my spouse brought this up because we watched it together. I think the only problem with breaking them up and her ending up with Aubrey Plaza, who I adored in this movie, it was so wonderful to see her genuinely as a warm character because she doesn't get to do that a lot um, because she's so good at being sarcastic or an asshole, which is also great, is that. If they break up, it's like, oh, look at the fragility of queerness, like any bumps in the road and you can't be happy. And so you just move on. And that's been depicted a ton on screen that like queer people can't be happy. It's too complicated. And so in a way, I 
do like that they get their happy ending because it does show that this, there can be strife and strength in queer relationships just like any straight depicted relationship. But I also agree. I spent a lot of the movie going, wow, she's such a jerk. I hope they don't end up together. And then they did. Um, I mean, I think it's a great vehicle for Dan Levy's speech about coming out and how it's complicated. Remind me, what did your parents say when you told them you were gay? Um, that they loved and supported me. That's amazing. My dad kicked me out of the house and didn't talk to me for 13 years after I told him. Everybody's story is different. There's your version and my version and everything in between. But the one thing that all of those stories have in common is that moment right before you say those words when your heart is racing and you don't know what's coming next. That moment's really terrifying. And then once you say those words, you can't unsay them. A chapter has ended and a new one's begun and you have to be ready for that. Can't do it for anyone else. Just because Harper isn't ready, it doesn't mean she never will be. And it doesn't mean she doesn't love you. And like, I've mentioned this on Twitter, I, that scene and the movie made me really upset after that because I've never come out to my parents and it's not because they're conservative or because I don't, they're homophobic or any of that. It's because I'm straight presenting. I married a woman who's also bisexual and I didn't feel a need to explain it to my parents because we'd been together a while. I'd never brought a guy home. I dated guys, but I'd never had a long-term relationship with a guy. And so, um, or anyone non-binary for that matter. And so like, it made me really upset because I'm like, maybe I do need to tell them. And like, I wrestled with that after watching this movie. And I think that's why this movie is important is that someone like me who's been queer or came out as queer in high school and has become more comfortable with my queerness in my adulthood, I still wrestle with that because while I think my sister-in-law knows and I think my cousins know and I've never explicitly hit it, I've never had the conversation with my parents that I am a bisexual. And so I wondered about that because of this movie. And it made me emotional because of this movie. Because it's not just the happy families. It's not just the problematic families. There's a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And this movie shows that well, I think, even though it doesn't always execute on everything well. And one thing that you bring up that I think is interesting is you use the word important. And I do think that this movie is important. I also don't think it is joke heavy for being a comedy and so i think that there's yeah. something interesting there though in when i think of famous queer films whether it be brokeback mountain or philadelphia they or you know a milk they tend to be heavier films often dramas often oscar bait if you will and so i really do love the idea of queerness through the lens of comedy because i think queer people are some of the funniest if not the the funniest out there. Um, so I like that idea. And so I guess what I think this movie grapples with, interestingly, is can a piece of art, whether it be a film, television, what have you, be both important and comedic? And I love that it strived to be that. I don't think it landed, but I think that what I take away from this is I would rather a film 
take the leap that Happiest Season did and not quite land on the bullseye, then avoid the leap altogether. And I do think, to your point, that there are people out there who are not out by choice, are not out by circumstance, uh, aren't don't feel safe to be out, aren't yet comfortable being out, have a family who very well might reject them, ostracize them, kick them out if they're out. There's so many people out there that are going to watch this film and take something away from it deeper than just belly laughs. So no, do I need to see another conceit of the parents are coming downstairs and they're in the bed together and so she has to jump out of bed and hide behind the door, but the nieces and nephews kind of stare through the door? No. Do I think it's interesting that that is a heteronormative comedic trope put put with queer people? Because I don't want to say it's a queer lens in that instance. It's just queer people inhabiting the roles that we typically see of straight people in a Christmas comedy. Hmm, there is something there. That's interesting. I, I, I think that that's worth like meditating on. But I just think more often than not, for so many of the jokes in this film to land, it had to stretch itself so far. I'm reminded of, there's a scene that takes place at the mall in Pittsburgh, shout out once again, and Harper's niece and nephew put some stolen objects in Abby's backpack, and she's caught, and she has to go to mall security, and it's this whole thing. And it just had nothing to do with the film at all, and it like took us out of the world of the film for a long time, only to sort of further this idea of like, Abby is out of her depth with this family. And I thought that there were so many smarter ways to do that. And I do want to just briefly talk about the canonically best Christmas film of all time, The Family Stone, because I do think it's worth noting what The Family Stone does well, which I could do it, you know, many of us could do a dissertation on because there's that much there, but it's that everything within the world of The Family Stone is building towards the dynamic of this family. So when you have all of these small character moments, it's all going to show us, it's all towards this dynamism of saying, like, these are all of the, the pieces that make up the Family Stone. Um, and I just think that there were many instances of this movie where we were seeing things play out that didn't actually add to any puzzle that I think the film was trying to build. I want to end by talking about the fact that we have Kristen Stewart, Dan Levy, Victor Garber, Clea Duvall, all of these out artists working on a film about queer that you know that centers queerness shall we say and because to me if there's one kind of aspect of this film that I want to see more of that I I'm so delighted we should know this film did tremendously well um you know we don't get analytics from from places like Kulu but they have told us that it was the I think I believe the number one original film the most watched original film over a weekend or you know I could be a little off with my stats here but something to that effect something to the effect that it did really well I think it cannot be denied the quality of the film. There's, you know, we can talk about that, but but we cannot deny the fact that this queer, uh, this queer ensemble making a film centering queerness did really well, both to to an audience that's comprised of queer, non-queer, cis, trans, non-binary, all of the the, the people out here that are going to watch this film. Um, it got a lot of eyeballs and. We're talking about it now, and a lot of people are talking about it, and that to me is inarguably a good thing. Um, so what are your thoughts on sort of seeing something like this capture the zeitgeist? I mean, I love it. I have some qualms like, 
I mean, I love Victor Garber. I've loved him forever from his nerdy run on The Flash to, like, you know, classics that he's done and, you know, all of these different things. But he's playing a straight dad, like a, like a essentially Republican straight dad. And it, I, I want to see him be queer more on screen. He's not a ton. And that bums me out, but that has nothing to do with anything because he's so good at playing this kind of dad. He's done it so many times. But I agree wholeheartedly that it's great to have it in the zeitgeist and... Like, I love this cast, and, like, I love Kristen Stewart. Like, I saw the Twilight movies like everybody else. She was terrible in them, but as we get further and further from them, and Robert Pattinson is, you know, also terrible in them, like, they are great in other things. And to see her shine and get the timing down and be funny and be awkward and adorable, like, phenomenal. And then, you know, I think the cast is really great. I love, I will watch anything Dan Levy is in. I am obsessed with Schitt's Creek. I think he's an incredible human. So for him to rubber stamp this and be involved, I think, as a producer, like, I know that they were pushing to get this to a place that they could get it out and get people to see it. And there are jokes that land that are funny. And there are moments that are really well done. Without a doubt. And it is absolutely because of how phenomenal this cast is. I think, like... Alice, I've loved Alison Brie for a while, and typically she plays a mousy character or very, like, you know, very pretty and very sweet, um, with some exceptions. And this, she was just such an absolute tyrant the whole movie and did it so well. Like, I love seeing that stuff. And, like, my friend Burl plays her husband, who then, you know, we discover is secretly having an affair. And, like, I think that the, the, the notes that it hits are very typical holiday awkward comedy. And so for a queer movie to get that, spotlight i think is important even if it falls flat like a similar straight movie would yeah i, I just want to my my i i don't agree about alison Brie's performance <laughs> and i i just want to say because i look at that character very similarly to sarah jessica parker's character in the family stone mm. who starts off very similarly in sort of trope to to alison Brie's character yeah. you know the idea of like the hard ass but alison Brie's character by the end there's just not a journey. Yeah. Whereas again, sorry to like make this a family stone podcast. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> but I just think by the end of the film, Meredith, which is Sarah Jessica Parker's uh, character in the family stone is completely transformed right. by her, the circumstance. And I just feel like none of the characters really go through any journey yeah. except for the Victor Garber character. But even that is kind of unearned. I do want to comment on your, 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 to remark on your comment earlier about Victor Garber playing more queer characters, I don't disagree. I do want to say, though, I think there's something interesting about having this film where you have Kristen Stewart, a queer person playing queer, Victor Garber, a queer person playing straight, Aubrey Plaza, a straight person playing queer, Mary Steenburgen, a straight person playing straight. I like yeah. this sort of mishmash of it all because, yes, I want to see more queer people playing queer, but I also want to see more queer people playing straight. I want to see more queer people. Yeah. And so I think that without disagreeing with what you said, again, I do think there's validity in seeing queer people playing all of the parts out there because I feel like we are still at a place where we just need more queer representation, period. And I think in a tapestry where there are so many other queer characters, I felt like it was kind of, I almost found it enjoyable to see Victor Garber playing yeah. The hard ass. I think the character was just not developed enough um, to make me feel any kind of way about him, which was more the writing than it was Garber's performance. I just think that was a character who was like, he needed to be a little bit more Scroogey, and he just was like not. 
he was not awful from the beginning, so his journey to getting unawful was like a very short one. Yeah. Um, and I just think Mary Steenburgen deserved more. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. The great Mary Steenburgen. Um, but yeah, what a great cast. And it sounds like we're in agreement. It's like, this is a film that we're glad got made. I would definitely be on board for a sequel. Yes. And I definitely am really heartened. This reminds me similarly to the success of Black Panther in that, and I think obviously Black Panther is a far superior movie, right. but I think it's a reminder that when you have these movies that are sort of setting a new standard that do so well, um, sort of critically is important, but ultimately audience is what, we're, is what we're really after. And when these films do really well, it signals to these studios like Hulu, like um, TriStar and Sony and whatnot, it signals to them that these sorts of stories work, that there is an audience for that, and then more get greenlit. And I think even if you look now, it's like there's Hallmark gay Christmas movies coming out and uh, Lifetime is doing Christmas movies. Jonathan Bennett is cashing checks, y'all. Um, there, there is just, a, there is going to continue to be more of this and hopefully, you know, we get queer Thanksgiving films because, hello, I think it's worth noting, why are we getting Christmas films on Thanksgiving? Why are we getting Thanksgiving films on Thanksgiving and Christmas films on Christmas? Why did this movie about Christmas come out on Thanksgiving? It's almost like we want to erase the very notion of Thanksgiving. Anyway, um, but this just to say, this is the beginning, uh, this is a starting place for there to be more of this, uh, to continue in the legacy of the Family Stone. Um, and so, happiest season, thumbs up. I was going to say reluctant thumbs up. It's not even reluctant thumbs up. It's thumbs up. Let's do more of this. And and hopefully, it reminds me, it's like, sorry to make a Buffyism, but like, Buffy, if Buffy was just season one, we wouldn't be talking about Buffy today. Buffy is Buffy because of where it goes in season two and beyond. And so I'd like to think of Happiest Season as a launching pad for more, 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 more. We have the appetite for it confirmed. So Happiest Season, thumbs up. To make a little bit, of a 180, but no, actually, keeping on the theme of thumbs up. I'm so excited for our guest today. I was excited before the interview because obviously anyone who's been listening to Shut Up Evan for a long time knows she's one of my faves. I'm more excited having done the interview and for you all to hear it because this is a person who came on this show with something of an agenda in a really interesting way. And the level of vulnerability and honesty is rare. And I'm super grateful and I'm super happy that all of these years after many people might have first been introduced to her, and her name is Dita Ritz, for those of you that don't know, the great Dita Ritz, I'm excited um, for this opportunity to get in deeper to her story, to learn more about her, and hopefully for you all to fall in love with this human that I've been like loving uh, for almost a decade now. So without any further ado, let's give it up for the great. Miss Dieteritz. Let's do it. He is best known for his awe-inspiring run on RuPaul's Drag Race season four, where he performed arguably one of the show's best lip syncs of all time, if not the best lip sync of all time, to Natalie Cole's This Will Be. Prior to becoming a drag performer, he attended the International Academy of Fashion and Design to study fashion. He then began dressing in drag as a way to exhibit his portfolio. If you are a lover of drag, he is essential viewing. I cannot underline that enough. He is prepared, he is passionate, he is meticulous, he is accomplished. He's got talent for days and legs for days to boot. He's got a voice and he knows how to use it. He is, to quote Christopher John Rogers, the original dancing diva. I am deeply honored to welcome the Dita Ritz. 
Dita, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, that intro. <laughs> that intro is so gorgeous. Yes. Oh yes, you were taking me back to all that. Yes, I enjoyed that. You know, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. My pleasure. And this is a long time coming too. And I have to say, I remember back in season one when I originally began asking people who they wanted to see on this podcast, your name would come up time and time again. And so I'm just so delighted that we uh, finally found uh, this space because I feel like you and I have a lot to get into. Oh, absolutely. I have always enjoyed your work. And I think there's like such an art to interviewing and you have the talent for it. And so I'm super honored even to be here because you are one of the people who like to really, you be getting the girls and their feelings. So I'm, mm. <laughs> I'm mm. excited to just talk to you because you and I, I think uh, this, has, this has been a long time coming. Agreed. So yeah. getting into it, I'm going to hit you with a big one right off the top because the number one mm. question that I got asked when I mentioned that I was going to have you on the pod and I always ask for people to ask questions that they want, want to ask to the guests. The number one question, and I've long been wondering this, why have we not seen you on All Stars? It just feels like such a big oversight on the show's part. And I know perhaps you are on an upcoming season and you cannot say, but I just have to question why we haven't seen you. You know, there's a lot that actually like, yeah, I feel goes into that. And I guess maybe this is like the opportunity to break that down. I don't know. <laughs> I always like to make the joke, maybe I missed someone's birthday. I don't know. I It's, it's very <laughs> difficult to really pinpoint what it is because it is very obvious i mean i i do have an ego because you have to have one to work in this entertainment world but like i think that i'm very talented i think i'm very capable of it and so i don't know i wish i could like pinpoint because i'm not unprofessional i'm very courteous and kind i'm i think i'm a fierce queen I, i'm beautiful i mean i'm talented i don't understand like where is the problem a few of the girls who have been on all stars have given me this advice to like really just be on your fans asses in a way like letting them know like if you guys want me on you have to speak you have to annoy the hell out of all those people over there in order for that because that's really how it happens you know there has to be an like like a huge wave of like conversation because if you look at any past girls who have gotten those opportunities and all those blessings that come is because there's a huge wave of fans who are speaking about this topic or why isn't this person that, so I feel like the fan, it's out of my hands. The fans have to do something, you know, but I also think it's politics and I do, I don't want to be like, oh, I big racist, but I think race does come into a, a, fa a matter of fact about it. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a lot, but I don't know. What do you think, Evan? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked. It's long <laughs> you know, like, been I would love to get your opinion because I, I guess I've never really asked people that. Like, what do you think about it? Like, because obviously I just said I think I deserve it. And I don't I know. Mean, I mean, I think you beyond deserve it. I mean, honestly, it's funny. It's like they're filming All Star 6 now and it's like we're long past needing you on the show. I think that mm -hmm. my main frustration in not seeing you back is that there are a lot of girls, and this is no disrespect to anyone that has been asked back. I just want to make that clear. But there are girls that come mm -hmm. back to the show these days who give you exactly what they gave you before, who got a fully realized arc on the show. And I'm going to name names just for the sake of clarity. So someone like Miss Cracker on season 10, she gave mm -hmm. you so much. I'm not sure anyone out there was like hankering to see more. And I think in your distinct case, 
there's so much more to be seen, both in how long it's been since we last saw you on the show and many people like myself feeling like you were eliminated too soon in your original season. So I feel like the main purpose of All Stars is to bring back the dolls and give them a second go round to show you what's up, what's new. And I think it's disappointing for me as a longtime viewer of the show to not see more of the season one, two, three, and four girls back on the show. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's disappointing. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like because your season came on so many years before social media really took off in the way that it has, specifically with Drag Race, do you feel like the girls that were in the earlier seasons are at a disadvantage in terms of, you know, culling their fans together, as you say, to help prop them up and, and get them these opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean, our season was kind of the kickoff to like what social media was. Now people pay attention to so much social media when it comes to drag, and that's really where they get their history from in some ways. You know, when there's a whole other world of like, you know, history of drag that people don't even know about, you know? The pageants and all that. Completely. I have a question for you from Miss Shea Coulee, who wanted me mm -hmm. to ask you if you <laughs> if you still smoke blondes out of a cigarette holder while watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> According <laughs> to Shay, the children need to know about that. Uh, uh, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I can't believe Shay remembered that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I, I do. I mean, you know, I'm a fancy person at times. So I like to, you know, be fancy. And I mean, I hold the blunt without a holder sometimes too. But I, 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 you know, I like to be fancy here and there, you know, drink Coca Cola out of a wine glass. Why not? Yes. Yes. I love that. So I want to go in a time machine back a little bit to young Xavier. You were born and grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Tell me a little bit about your early life growing up there. Growing up, um, it was like super conservative, you know, and my parents aren't like hardcore, like you are a sinner, but my mom and dad both are, you know, religious. And I just grew up in a really religious household. And so I was told being gay and the idea of drag or art was, was, you know, there was that fine line I knew I could flow, you know, with it. But luckily I had parents who really supported me being creative. I was the only child, so I became very creative within myself, you know, constantly collecting magazines and watching everything on television and growing up during like TRL days and watching people like Britney Spears and Beyonce and Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera and being inspired by all these people, knowing that I like want to do something in that world, but I'm not quite sure. So, and, and then I started going out when I was like 16 years old and I would meet the drag queens and then I would like connect with them. And I never wanted to do drag. That was my whole entire thing. I liked being behind the scenes. I wanted to be a seamstress. That was my whole entire thing. Like I just wanted to sew for drag queens. And so the, all the drag queens started telling me uh, in my hometown that you should start doing drag. You should start doing drag. And I was like, no, 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 never. But you know, the first time you see yourself done up, you'd be like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I can kind of do this. <laughs> this is cute. So you mentioned, you know, how conservative Michigan was at that time. It still is relatively mm -hmm. conservative. I mean, thankfully it flipped blue yeah. on this last election, but it, it can be there, definitely conservative pockets. Do you remember, and obviously this was, this was at a time when LGBTQ plus representation, it just wasn't as common. There wasn't the internet to go online and connect with other LGBTQ plus individuals. Do you remember the first time you met another gay person? Oh my God, yes. Okay, so I met this queen. Her name was Electra. I'm still really good friends with her to this day. 
And she went to like a, a, another high school and I met her because she played in the marching band and I played in the marching band and marching bands sometimes get together and do fun nerd things like have battles, you know, uh, and things like that. She was, had a face full of makeup on, had the marching band, had, you know, uniform on. I was like, oh my gosh, she's fierce. I need to be friends with her. And it was really her, that queen who really helped literally like me out of the closet. I mean, like really broke down the door and I came out of the closet. And to this day, you know, I'm still friends with her. And, and the funny thing is she was also one of the first people to tell me I was going to do drag. And she's seen me, like, obviously on the show. She's seen me online. But she has never seen me in person in drag. It's really crazy. Oh, but wow. we have, like, she's one of my dearest friends. And I love her so much. Hmm. Did you ever have any experiences when you were younger where you felt like you were in physical danger because of your sexual orientation? I know for me, I remember several instances of being chased home by school bullies. And those experiences, I, for me personally in adulthood, stay with you. It's just something mm -hmm. that really stays with you. Did you ever feel like your physical self was in any danger because of where you lived and who you were? There was a moment where, like, one of my cousins told my mother, I remember, that, like, I want to teach him how to fight, like, because I think he knew I was going to be gay, and he wanted me to be able to defend myself. Mm. So I remember him teaching me how to fight and never really understanding what I needed it for until it came those times. And so I was kind of always a person who fought back with bullies. Now, don't get me wrong. I had my ass handed to me, you know, a few times because I was, wasn't ready or prepared. They caught me off guard. But I was pretty good at defending myself. I actually didn't mind, like, I guess it's a Midwest thing to kind of fight, too, if that makes sense. So it's like, if a bully come up to you and you don't mind fighting them, you'd be like, come on, let's fight them. And I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I have learned to, like, control those things because it kind of develops you into having a temper. I think, to some cases, if you grow up like that, specifically if you are, like, honestly gay, you know what I mean? You having a fight and you think you got to be on 10 all the time to like go at somebody so I didn't have to deal with that but I, I remember people and other fellow friends watching that happen to, to them and thinking like girl just fight him <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy I want to talk about fashion because you know I know you went to school for fashion and as you mentioned you had this early love of fashion that sort of it sounds like that really was a gateway into drag for you was through the fashions but before that when you were growing up you know you mentioned watching these music videos on TRL I know like for me those were so formative I keep thinking of mm -hmm. Christina Aguilera's come on overlooks the, the uh, all white look with the jewel tones. And it's just like, that comes to mind. Were there instances, whether it be music videos or fashion designers or sort of entry points for you that really made you say, okay, I want to do this? Um, okay, so one of the first early things I can remember was this show. It would come on every Saturday on CNN. It was called Style with Elsa Clinch. And I used to watch the show with my mother. That was kind of how I got really into like knowing all the designers. My mother also would get all the magazines. Like she would get the Vogue in the mail. So, and sometimes she would be mad because I would open it up before she did. That was like my early like kind of connection. I would watch these shows on, on television and then I would flip open this Vogue magazine and see it in a layout in the back or in an ad campaign. Or, and it was kind of like interesting seeing how it just, that little tidbit of how the world worked. 
Do you remember, because I mean, nowadays you can go online, you can see Instagram and Vogue.com and all, you know, fashion's everywhere. But, you know, when we were younger, it didn't exist outside of the pages of Vogue, really, especially when you're somewhere like Michigan or where I was in Pennsylvania. And so do you remember that feeling, you know, you mentioned opening up your mother's Vogue even before she had access. Do you remember what that felt like from like an emotional standpoint, just to see this excess of beauty contained in this book? Oh my God, absolutely. Like, like I said, like the idea of collecting the Vogue, I, I mean, for a long time, I collected so many Vogue magazines and, you know, getting the September issue was truly the highlight and, you know, there was no Instagram. So it was like, that was like a big giant Instagram profile and in one in a book, you know, in a way. And I love the fantasy that, that Vogue and like magazines and photography and all that gives. It's funny, I've been looking at a lot of the recent editorials that Vogue's been doing, and they've been doing a lot of stuff up against like backdrops and seamlesses lately. And it Mm -hmm. made me think about like when I was a kid and reading Vogue and how much these editorials would just be like in the jungle or like on the Mm -hmm. desert and just like how expansive they were. And And I don't know. Yeah. They would spend the money and actually take them to like the desert, honey. They'd be filming in the middle of the like hot desert sun. Yes. I even think about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit and like seeing Tyra Banks like on the water and everything. And it's, I mean, obviously it could be because of coronavirus, but it just seems like the fantasy has sort of almost the, the, it's almost like the walls have come in on the fantasy. It's really interesting. So who were the girls that you were idolizing? You know, we talked about music videos, for instance, but like were there celebrities, singers, actors, what have you, that were really influential in sort of helping to inform your own identity? Well, I love, when I was younger, I used to love like Mary, I mean, I still do. I love Mary J. Blige and Little Kim. They were like my two favorites, I think, that I always saw them. And I kind of always loved how they, weren't just put into a box. The one thing I love about like someone like Little Kim is that she can go to the hood and hang with everyone in the hood, but she could literally be sitting next to A-listers and they love her, you know what I mean? They love who she is and what she represents. And I always saw them sitting front row at the Versace shows. And then, you know, Mary J. Blige is making songs with Sting and, you know, and you too, yeah. and you're like, you're like, man, how that like transcends and how she's allowing other people to see that she can have that experience. Yeah. So you leave to attend the International Academy of Fashion Design in Chicago. And I read that drag began with you needing a way to show off your work. So was that your first experience with drag? Was in other words, it's like you were creating these looks and it's like, well, who better to wear them than yourself? Absolutely. That was exactly the idea during that time. So like, the, you know, the, the, the clothing designer, St. John, mm-hmm. they used to have the same woman wear the clothes for years, like I would flip open a Vogue magazine and the first four pages is like a complete St. John ad with her every time she had the short little blonde bob, she, you know, like white lady, like she was, and she looked rich, just rich, just rich. And so I thought like, why not just do that same thing? You know, like, you know, I didn't really have nobody wearing my clothes. So I was like, they'll be made to fit you. And then you can like dress yourself up, you know? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> so it is clear from taking in all of the awesomeness that is you that you are a fan of both dance oh. and pop music. And so what I want to know, especially living in quarantine times, is there a certain song or songs that are guaranteed to get you moving or put you in a good mood when you're feeling kind of low or kind of down? Oh my God, yes. Well, first and foremost, I have this love for obviously being a, from being a religious kid growing up and like being a son of a preacher. I enjoy like gospel music. Mm -hmm. And so, sometimes I will listen to gospel songs and the energy of it will get me up and, you know, get me up moving and dancing around and cleaning the house and, <laughs> you know, doing what I need to do to try to stay productive. And it also gives you like the feeling of like hope, you know, you can take the whole God out of it. And really what, cause my whole thing is I understand growing up in a religious background, how it can sometimes be so forced on you that you don't even know what the difference between up and, up and down is, you know? Right. And so the one thing I say is sometimes take the God out of it and really just hope, understand that gospel music really does bring you hope. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Tell me about this. You mentioned, you know, growing up in this religious household. I was listening to an episode. There's this fabulous podcast called Fanti. It's hosted by Travel Anderson and Jarrett Hill. I really highly recommend it. And they did an episode where they talked about being Black and growing up in religious households and the impact that that had on their queerness. And I'm just curious, you know, being that traditionally my understanding of the Catholic religion is that they do not love gay people i could be i could be wrong my understanding could be incorrect how did religion play up against your identity and I, you're coming into your identity did you ever feel like those two things were incongruous okay so i have to say one thing before i start because i am nervous i don't know if i'm like if it's it, it, it's coming across i'm just trying to hold it together because i'm very nervous for some reason t.s madison said it best one time in an interview i watched where she said religion and it's no offense to anybody but religion is probably one of the, like the worst things on black families and specifically when it comes to like being gay and being black and then how like religion is pushed on us it's so difficult i don't think people really re don't realize like how difficult it could be sometimes if you're in a family of color and you're you're religious and then you have these beliefs that you're just like literally raised and you know who you are so it's very difficult to separate yourself. It just is it's very difficult to, as you get older, to separate it because there's still things that in the back of my head, I believe, you know what I mean? Because I went to church every single Sunday and these are things that I believe, but I know in my heart, like what's, what's really right. And I know reality, like, wait a minute, but it's very difficult. It's very hard. Do you remember at what age you started to realize that my sense is that you kind of have to have a moment in which you realize that your religion does not have your best interests in mind. That's my perception. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you start to realize that you need to be who you are, you can't listen to everything that this religious belief is espousing. Did you have a specific moment when you started to realize that perhaps not everything that was being taught to you was correct? I remember like 
specifically when I turned 18 and knowing what like lawfully I had the right to do at the age of 18, I was testing that with my mom and dad just to see, you know, like I wanted a tattoo. I remember that my mother really didn't throw a fit, but I remember my father coming to me and saying, can you hold off at least on the tattoos and the piercings? Like we get it, but like give us a minute to like get it together, you know? But yeah, like I kind of knew, like I was very lucky growing up because my parents had a leash on me, but I knew how much I could play on that leash and run. You know, it's like a dog who's on the leash and he like mm-hmm. runs yeah. and chokes. I just knew how much of that I could play with with my parents. And so I, I was lucky enough to kind of like play their game and be like, yes, I'm going to church. But then like I was in the club on Saturday. Like, you know, <laughs> I guess every kid has to learn differently, you know, mm. but I had to learn that whole thing with my parents because mm. I was also scared my parents were going to kick me out. You know, so I I felt like I had to. I didn't want to rebel against that and not go to church. And I just didn't want to deal with all that, you know? Did you have moments when you were younger, perhaps in like your early teens or even before that, when you tried to tried to not be gay, tried to either tell yourself that you weren't gay or or suppress it in some way because of your religious beliefs? Um, no, no. Like there were times where I would try to flirt with girls, but it just didn't work. It was not me. I was like, no, this is not it. <laughs> so I never really, I always knew I liked men. Like that was always like a feeling I knew I had. Like, and I know that I've talked to some other like people who are gay and they're like, no, I didn't really have those things. Like I actually tried girls or I liked girls. And I was like, that's interesting. I was like, I, I think women are beautiful. And I think that they're very like, I have an attraction to beauty of women, but I don't have like that, you know, want to get it on. Like I've always liked men. It was the weirdest thing. So let's get into Drag Race. You know, you're on the yes. show in season four, but I want to go back before that. So the show mm-hmm. had been on for three seasons. Um, seasons one and two were kind of like revving up, if you will. And by season three, the show was beginning to er- to gain some traction. At this time, the show was on the Logo Network and not on VH1. It was just a really different time. Again, it's like, I believe this was, there was MySpace at this time and there might've been like, there, no, there probably was Facebook, but it was just the very beginnings of social media as a mechanism. What was your understanding of Drag Race from the first three seasons? My understanding of it was, it was very Project Runway, America's Next Top Model style. And, you know, they do challenges. They pretty much sold itself. And I liked it. I mean, I still do like the show. It wasn't until, like, I noticed every time the girl would come to town, like, the Drag Race girl would come to town. They would all even tell me, you know, Morgan, Juju, Raven, Pandora, all of them would say, you know, oh, my gosh, you should audition for the show. And it was not something I was really interested in doing. I just, you know, I thought maybe I could get on, you know, make a little bit more money, you know what I mean, get your name out there and be... Cause my whole thing I've always said is like, fame is cute and all like, that's really, I like, I like the idea of famous and being famous, but for me, it's about respect. And so that's what I've always worked for in this industry. I've never worked for no damn fame or no, no celebrity. I've worked to be respected. Mm. And so I feel like for me, it was nice at least getting that from like these girls who were on television and I would get to work with them and they would be like, Oh, you should audition. You should audition. So 
So you're cast on the show for the fourth season of the show. And I really feel like season four was a big turning point in terms of, I just feel like whenever people are like, I've never seen Drag Race, what season should I start with? I consistently see mm-hmm. season four come up. It's just such a all-star roster of girls. When you first found out you were going to be on the show, did that feel like a life-changing moment? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, I never like had an opportunity to be on television where this was going to happen, where like, you know, I've gotten little television spots on the news, but never like something like this to, uh, you know, uh, really have a chance to show who I am and really expose myself to the community, you know, the community, the industry of drag and entertainment. So yeah, I remember being like extremely nervous. I was extremely nervous and I didn't know much. I did not know a lot, like what was going to happen or I just knew that like, take this opportunity, you know what I mean? Even if you're not prepared, take this opportunity, like you need it, like this, you know, this is what everyone's been telling you, so. You're right. Tell me about how different the preparation process was back then, because I know we know now that the girls find out they're gonna be on the show and they get on their phone and they start texting a designer friend or another queen uh-huh. and pulling yeah. looks and all these stunts occur before the show even begins. But again, the show was a different beast way back then. How much preparation went into be- being on the show? Not like, I didn't have a lot of help, like you said, we couldn't tell anybody. We were really kind of sworn to secrecy not to say anything to anybody. And there was, you know, I read, I've I've openly said this, it was 28 pages in that contract. I read all 28 pages and there were talks of lawsuits and things if I would have say anything. So it was very nerve wracking at the time. And, you know, not being able to tell your friends and have like your team of people to really come together. And it's one of my biggest regrets. And even I think you can hear it in my voice as I'm talking about it. To be real and honest, it's one of my biggest regrets is not just opening my mouth and asking for help and not caring about what could happen. You know what I mean? Because I think that that's something like I look at like Willem, for instance. I'm sure Willem didn't keep her. She told everyone she could probably to help her. You know what I mean? And like, I, I, that's something I've learned from her being friends with her after the show is that you sometimes have to just speak up and say, look, I need some help. I'm going on drag racing. Don't you tell a soul, but I need your help because I know you have this and can do that and da da da. So yeah, it was it's just very different compared to now because now you it's like almost like you hear about it. You know what I mean? You hear about it. Like I get text messages of you heard so and so in there. I'm like, I know it was it doesn't shock me. Yeah. And I think also too, there's more of a blueprint in terms of like how to navigate the show. So I think, you know, you see a lot of people in this current iteration of the show self-edit. So you see people Mm -hmm. going in there more wanting to be the villain or sort of knowing the role that they hope to play on the show. And I feel like back in, in, in your time when you girls were on the original dolls, as we say, it's like you guys were establishing what is now the blueprint. Yeah. And that's why I always sort of favor those older seasons because it just it uh, feels so natural to me. It's like my yeah. tendency in any pop culture, I always go for the older seasons, the original seasons of a show, just because I like seeing it all come together. I agree. I mean, America's Next Top Model. Hello, hello. Are the best. You know, I have a terrifying fear of spiders. I don't like looking at them. And, but that episode mm-hmm. with that whole... That's so sickening. I, I still, yes. like, had to, like, I was still in front yeah. of the television, like, freaking out and shaking. But, like, at the same time, like, oh, my God, those pictures are gorgeous. So, yes, I feel like no, Eva, Eva put tarantulas on the map. I mean, quite frankly. It's no, like... no, absolutely. And and I agree with you. The older seasons, like, are the ones, like, we lay the foundation. And we really do pave the way. And so, 
the it's really frustrating because Drag Race isn't the only show out there that gets that. You know, there's a lot of early seasons of great shows out here that they just don't pay any of us mm -hmm. any attention, and it's very difficult. And it's very hard to have to stand up prideful in an industry where, like I said, we all have egos and we all have this. It's very hard to actually stand up and be nice and smile, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to admit something right now. I'm very known for being nice. People tell me that all the time, but there's times where I'm shocked by it because I know in the back of my head what I'm really thinking sometimes about what I really feel about this industry and, you know, why does she get this and why does she, you know, so it's, <laughs> I have to say I'm very thankful that people think that because I really do try to smile through all that, mm. you know, because it's hurtful kind of in a way. Mm. So you walk into the workroom and you discover these 12 other girls, many of whom I imagine you knew on some level, but correct me if I'm wrong. What was the mm -hmm. first 24 hours like of both settling into meeting all of these new people, but also having cameras around you documenting your every move? I just imagine there, there has to be a period of sort of getting used to the lights and the cameras and just the choreography of existence on a reality show. Yeah, no, it took me about like three episodes to ignore the cameras because um, you do naturally like turn on when it's in front of you, you know, and you naturally are like, oh, hi, you know, like um, whatever. <laughs> so it took me like three episodes to completely mute that out. And then it was fun being there with girls I did know. You know, I had just worked with Milan maybe like a few weeks prior to that. Princess and Fifi and I obviously lived in Chicago. I knew who Latrice and like Chad Michaels were. Willem at that time had looked really hella familiar, but then it like, clicked to me like who she was. So I kind of like had like a, oh, I know, you know, and it does help going into knowing two other girls from your city are there and it, it, it helped the situation. I'm going to ask you about Fifi, not in the hope of starting anything, but mm -hmm. I recently rewatched your season in preparation for today. And there's an exchange that I think deserves some scrutiny. Mm -hmm. During the show's Frock the Vote competition, guest judge mm -hmm. Dan Savage asks Fifi O'Hara which one of her fellow drag queens she chooses her running mate and why. Fifi gestures at you and says, Well, being in this time period, I think it's so great that the help can sit there and compete alongside with me. So I definitely like to say my help, Dita Ritz. And the other help I had, Latrice Royale. <laughs> Yeehaw! Did she just call me the help? I don't even do windows. I'm from Compton, bitch. I'll whoop your ass. A comment like that simply would not pass today. I don't even know if the network would air such an exchange. But less than 10 years ago, a line like that not only went on air, but wasn't the subject of any substantive pushback or discourse. There was no outrage from any of the fans over that moment. And I'm wondering how you feel about that exchange. Um, okay, so I will be honest, at the time when it happened, I told her that personally, I would have made that comment on camera because for me, like we were close. So I completely did not take any offense to that because I probably called her some crazy things too, but I've never said it on camera. And so that was the one thing I had said to her. That was the one thing I had said to the judges because they were getting down on her. And I know Fifi's heart, I know she's not like that. And they didn't show that there was a point kind of where the judges did get on her and were like, that was a bit much girl. And I had to kind of like chime in and be like, look, that's how we banter. I was so numb in my like career to the idea of like, this type of stuff was always happening. Like the black girls were always being called the help. We were always being called nappy. We were always being called ashy. We were always being called ghetto. 
I was so numb to the idea of it that like all I could do was just put on my armor and probably like walk away from it because I knew nothing was going to be done. You know what I mean? Like I just knew how that's just what we have to deal with because you know what I mean? Like at this point, like, what am I going to say? Am I really going to abrupt and then show myself on camera and be like, Oh, I'll show you the help and then go off once again. Like, you know, and then that gets edited to look right. a certain type of way. And I have family to think about, you know, and that's the difference, like, between, like, I think some people when they go on reality TV and they want to be authentically themselves and then they want to play, like, a character that, like, people who play characters maybe don't necessarily always think about their family or important people who they could affect by acting like that. You know, whereas I, I have family and I had friends and I didn't want to, like, you know, I didn't want to disappoint Chicago and my hometown, Lansing, Michigan, and my parents, like possibly fighting somebody for calling me to help, you know? So I really kind of took that one for the team, if you ask me, you know, because definitely I could have went off, you know? And what was your relationship like moving after that moment? I mean, you, you mentioned you guys were close before that. Was everything cool by you two of you? Let me tell you this, my sense has uh-huh. been in the subsequent years. Yeah, I'm trying to, like, be cool, mm. you know, like, I'm trying to be cool about it, because, like, yeah, go on, go on, go on. No, sorry, My sense has been that you two are not the closest of friends, and that there mm-hmm. is so. and again, I'm not trying to stir the pot, but I'm just curious, no, sort fine. of, like, if there is any residual beef, and if it's, if it's over that moment, or if it's something larger, because I know Fifi, um... And I love Fifi, but I think Fifi has a very grating personality and Fifi is an agitator and that's not always a bad thing. But I'm just curious if, if you two, where sort of you two landed after that moment? Uh, after that moment, I think we kept it cool. You know, I have, I haven't spoken to Fifi in years. Um, you know, I'll be very honest with you. And I've, I have a problem with the things that she said about me on Hey Queen. That's just my whole entire issue with her. I've made that very public. I've said that. Um, I haven't talked to Dita, actually. I haven't seen her in a long time. Oh, really? Yeah, not that we're not friends or anything. I just haven't seen her. Hmm. I remember she was in New York for a while, and then she magically just left. I don't know where she went. Although New York is a very hard city, so I don't know. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. Ah! Seems like there's something you're not saying. I'm just saying, like, uh, New York is a very hard city. Like, it can break or make you there. Break- but if, I will tell you this, and she might get upset about this, but she is probably one of the messiest people I've ever lived with in my entire <laughs> oh, wow. life. wow. Everybody knows I love my Popeye's chicken. Right. She, like, takes the cake with Popeye's uh, chicken, and there, I would come home, and there's, like, boxes oh. everywhere. And I'm like, what the fuck? First off, where'd you get the money for all this chicken? <laughs> <laughs> but damn, like, she, she, she eats a lot. <laughs> she does. <laughs> My number is, she can give me a phone call, we can talk about it, but you know, she made really like, really disrespectful comments about me, talking about Popeye's chicken boxes and, and making accusations and lies about me, knowing that like, you know, people do like me, but there's also a fun narrative that people can easily sp- spin and play with about me. You know, you, t- you start talking about lotion, then all of a sudden it becomes a whole nother thing. And she kind of knows that whole thing. And she knows how the fans like to play with me on that, you know? and disrespect me and do stuff like that. And I felt like she just kind of played into that. And I just was like, I know you know, like we don't talk all the time, but I know you know better, girl. Like, you know, like I, there's so much I know about her and she knows I could tell the world, but she knows I'm not going to do that because I'm not that type of person. Mm. But she'll play with you like that. If she knows, you know, that's just how Fifi is. And I wish her the best of luck, you know. I heard she's doing her cosplay. She's slaying drag. She's an amazing drag artist, but she's just, not, you know, 
not the type of person I want to be around. So, Would it be substantive at, to you at all to receive an apology at this point? Or is it kind of just water under the bridge? I mean, I feel like, yeah, I mean, water under the bridge. But if she want to apologize, I would be shocked because she's not a person to really like, it, like she, to her, in her mind, I know she's probably thinking like, oh girl, I was just trying to be funny and shady and reedy, whatever. And I'm sure that that's what you thought you were doing, but that's not how it came off. And and especially if you know the real story, like I felt like what she was just saying, if she would have actually just told the real story, she actually would have looked fine in the real story she was telling. But you know how like sometimes when people who have like a snarky, dry wit, they try like they say things about you and then they try to read and then it doesn't fit right. Let me ask you this. You mentioned sort of the disrespect that some of the fans spew at you. Can you get into that at all? I feel like that's something we hear about at times, but I want to hear from you as someone who's been on the receiving end of that disrespect. And one thing that is so frustrating to hear about that as a fan of yours who feels such respect for you, it's super disappointing to think that quote unquote fans would go out of their way to treat you in that way. What What is that? What, where does that come from? What, what does that feel like? Uh, honestly, I, oh my God, it's like, see, it's like so many different le- like levels to it, if you ask me, like layers mm. to why that is. I think that first and foremost, it starts with lack of representation. So if like, if I'm not on an All-Stars, if I'm not on a house, like spectacular, if I'm not on Drag U, if I'm not on some type of like Drag Vegas, like if I'm not on that, in the fans' minds, you're seen as, less than not worth it so then what that does is that trickles down into my booking so when i'm making booking plans and i'm trying to book tours or book little things for myself to do around the country i have to fight just as hard for my pay i have to fight just as hard to make sure a car will pick me up at the airport and i don't have to figure some way to the hotel the fact that you will meet me and actually check check me in with my bags like it makes it hard for me then to have to fight to get respect in the industry because you've taken 14 girls and put them all on television, but you've only decided to invest all your time, publicity, PR, money into these five girls. And everybody else, I guess, like if this bitch gets sick, then you can come in as a filler. Mm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It makes complete sense. And I feel like, I know that you said this was like unedited, you can edit it. Like that, I want everything that I have said I'm like very nervous because I'm just like I don't like to dis I don't like to be disrespectful but I just feel like I want to be honest so I, I hope I'm not like coming off as like too blank blunt right now you know no and I, I do not think you are coming off as too blunt I think you are coming off as yourself which is how I think people and I think people want to hear this from you because I think people want to hear from you I think it's disappointing to hear, but I think it's important for people to hear so that they understand that there are monetary effects, there are professional uh, ramifications of sort of the mistreatment of these queens and sort of like who is sort of given an easy pass towards fame, who is able to appear on the show for one episode and can go on and, you know, walk on stage at the MTV Video Music Awards and the girls who, I don't want to say the word forgotten, but who have had a more difficult path towards, uh, and as you said earlier, it's not necessarily fame that you're after, uh, respect, who have had a more difficult path towards respect. So, Mm -hmm. no, I appreciate you sharing all of this. Talk to me about your relationship with the judges, there seemed to be, again, upon my rewatch, some dissonance between the drag that you were giving 
and the drag that those judges were receiving. Did you mm-hmm. feel that the judges understood you? Absolutely not. I will say that the only judge who I think ever understood me and even bothered to reach out to me outside of the show was Billy B. Billy B. And even to this day, I still have communication with him and he's still like, you know, I could call him and he would still give me advice on makeup and all that. Like he was the only person who gave me harsh critique on the show, but then also said, I want to work with you on your makeup. You know what I mean? Stuff that he taught me, I still use to this day. Mm. But like, it was, yeah, I I didn't feel like I had any connection with the judges. You know, Santino, he was very wishy-washy. And also I heard he was kind of scared of all of us because he was like, he was sitting behind the judges table and, you know, talk all this smack, but then he would be scared to actually face us. But I heard he was scared, like running like crazy. And then Michelle, I would like see Michelle here and there. I have such a problem with the fact that she told me to lotion up on national television. I was going to ask you about You know, her being a white woman, not understanding that what you say to us on that runway sometimes causes a narrative. Like I said that once again, steps into our booking. Now you got me looking like, can this girl bring lotion to the gig? Is she that unprofessional? No, you know what I mean? You just got, you got me really looking crazy. And I just really feel like it would be nice, like if even just to talk to her, because I felt like even when that happened, it was disrespectful. No matter even if my knees was ashy or not, like that's not your place to say that. And I've always even said, I would have rather if Rue would have said that. Rue could have literally on camera, broadcast on television, could have said, now, girl, before you come in my house, you're going to put some lotion on these knees, okay? I would have took that. Because I would have got that from what Rue said. But I feel like with Michelle, it was just really disrespectful. And I feel like it was a jab, kind of, you know? But I don't know. Maybe it's something I can eventually sit down with her and talk to her about. Because at the time, I thought it was hella disrespectful. And it's taken years for even, like, people to actually actually see how disrespectful it was. Mm. You know, for a long time, I couldn't I couldn't argue it as fair as I can argue it now. Because even other Drag Race girls and other people are like, yo, that was messed up. But, like, for a long time, I had to really, once again, smile and keep it together. So speaking of the judges and and the show, you know, you finished the show and then you've spoken about this in the past about a break that you took from drag in the subsequent years after the show. Can you break down for Mm -hmm. people what compelled you to take a break at a moment that might have seemed like the worst time to take a break because it's like you come off the show, everyone wants to see you, but it sounds like you had a, a reason why you needed to take a break. So can you sort of detail what exactly happened? So, because I've talked about this, like, in fact, with the surface, but I've never, like, dug deep. But once again, I'm about to really, really dig deep. And I, like, once again, keep it all in. Keep it all in, girl. I think that, for me, taking a break was what I, like, I know that it sounds crazy that, like, you know, you strike while the iron's hot, as they like to say. But not everybody's iron strikes hot. And some people get burned more than others. And I think that for me, it was very difficult for me to watch a lot of unfairness be done. You know, this, the excuse that I really do use is that my drag mother passed away. And that was the truth. My drag mother did pass away, like in the like final cherry on topping of this moment, like where it was like, I need to take a break. But it was so much other stuff that was going on behind the scenes, you know, traveling with some of the other girls from your season and not getting the fair treatment that other girls were getting. And, you do meet and greets and you be standing there and nobody want to come and talk to you or everybody has this whole narrative about you 
they come up to you and they're making disrespectful jokes like about ashiness and and blackness that they have nowhere nowhere of talking to you like they shouldn't even be talking to you like that and it was very difficult to have to deal with all of that and not have anybody to help like protect me honestly i didn't feel protected i felt like i got the opportunity to go on drag race and it was great but the experience was great once you get out of the machine and you have to go out into the world to like work it was difficult to do that even to some case you know what i mean and like there's no disrespect i had like management at the time and i felt the management wasn't even really being fair with me they were taking more attention on other girls from the season so you know it's very difficult and it's something i like once again have to smile and put like not get angry about but i get very angry about sometimes when i'm watching everybody else be able to you know have the other experiences and do things and it's hard you know it strikes me from what you're saying as sort of like an added emotional burden to not only feel this anger that you're describing, but then also having to feel like you need to suppress that anger because you need all to- All the time. Come like, off a certain way, yeah. All, sorry to cut you off, like no. all the time. That's like the one thing I feel that I am constantly told by friends. And I understand that when friends like, you know, you ever vented to a friend about like when you maybe see another editor or another journalist getting something that you know that you just like, well, how the hell he got that? How the hell they get that? And da -da! and it's obvious that you're the choice for it, but it's difficult to swallow that someone else got that. And you have friends who have to tell you like, you're doing it, just keep going. It's very difficult to like, for me sometimes to have to deal with that with friends because that's something I'm constantly told where my friends is like, no, you doing it, girl. Like, keep going. Like, you're there. Like, like I get it. I get it. You're so right. And I have to believe them. But it's very, it's like, it's hard to believe. You know what I mean? It's like hard to, it's hard to like, have to like always suppress that and be like, okay, it's, it's difficult. And maybe right now I'm like unleashing some of it in this interview with you talking to you. But like, it's hard to always suppress a smile or when you really feel like you're not being respected. Mm -hmm. There's a name that hasn't really come up a lot in our conversation thus far, and that is RuPaul. You first met RuPaul almost a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, who is RuPaul for you? RuPaul is, you know, an icon. He is a legend. He's a businessman. He is the supermodel of the world. I mean, RuPaul is the reason we all are you know the reason i'm sitting here talking to you and you know he is he has really opened the door of drag in such a big way uh, with drag race i also you know i think the obvious like people really want to know if he's going to speak up about the blm movement and if he's going to um you know speak up about, about like other personal things i mean my thing is like i want him to speak up too but also at the same time like he's been fighting a really long battle and we have to understand like rupaul been around legendary friends with gianni versace andy warhol girl like rupaul been fighting so we have to give our respects to ru for that but i mean it would be nice just you know girl speak up and say because i know you don't like no half-assing and disrespecting so you know like say something but also at the same time we have to understand that like she comes from a different generation she's a person of a particular age so you know we have to respect the legends when they just are like you know what i can open the door for all y'all to like go out and do everything and you know we have to just uh, sometimes you know it's like having that auntie or that old 
and she's that elderly auntie or uncle, you know, she's like, you know, I know. It's it makes, okay. yeah, it makes me think about the difference between sort of like uh, expectation and desire, which would, it sounds yeah. like what you're saying, it's like, yes, do we desire that? a legend like RuPaul might speak up more in a situation like this, perhaps so. But I think some people voice that desire as expectation and then therefore get disappointed when they don't. And I don't think it's productive to get mad at people for not doing things. It's yeah. way more easier to sort of focus on the things that people are doing because there's a lot of people doing bad things versus the people that aren't doing enough good things. Certainly worth scrutinizing both. But again, it's like, I think sometimes I saw this from several of the queens online that were sort of frustrations with RuPaul about not speaking out. And I think that mm -hmm. emotion is sort of misguided, if I might say. Um, Couple last, yeah, go ahead. The one thing also we have to like realize who are Ru, and as much as maybe we don't want to admit this, his hands might be tied, you know? So like, and, and these are the, sometimes we put ourselves in them positions where our hands are tied and we can't say nothing. So we all don't know, we all don't know why he ain't saying nothing. We all don't know what he is. We just know that he's given us something to really be happy about right now right. and maybe that's where we have to just know what that's what he's doing he he can't be out here protesting with us he can't really say what he wants but you know it was something so amazing to watch 45 minutes on television mm, completely final couple questions who are some of the rue girls that you're not necessarily close to but big fans of their work the ones that you look forward to catching up at at a drag con for instance i mean we said shea coulee i always enjoy shea coulee and especially what she's going to throw, of course, the outfit. Um, I, Pheromone, I like Pheromone. She's such a sweetheart. Love. And such a sweet, sweet girl. Sasha Valore, I'm always kind of mm -hmm. like excited about what she kind of does. I never really get to this girl's booth. I don't really know much about her, actually. I only see her when we do drag con, but like Violet Chachki, I think that she's just so, 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 you know, provocative and fierce. And I'm always excited to see what she's going to bring. Really just... All of them, it's really exciting to see. Like, I like whenever I go, like, DragCon for me is, it's this, it's weird for me, but I enjoy when I can, I go and I see the girls' booths and then kind of, I get to see a lot of their personality and yeah. I get to know a lot about them just looking at their booths sometimes, you know, yeah. like, oh, I see, I see, I see your queendom, you know, yeah. Detox really does fun ideas, you know, Willem is always really animated and really like, sitting in her chair and on something you know <laughs> yeah right having a brownie girl yeah. having a cocktail probably hidden in a the, in the little sippy thing yeah, exactly. um but yeah no it, i feel like you know drag con is like that one time really where i can see a lot of the girls because i i, I keep in touch with them but there's it's very few and it's very little so yeah. and i think that part of that is because honestly i don't work with them you know I, i've never i've not really been given an opportunity to work with them in things like everyone else has seen because they are all very close you know i just feel a little like maybe on the outside but i don't know <laughs> It's frustrating to hear that because you deserve to be on that stage. One thing that you said earlier that resonated with me, you used the word trailblazer to describe yourself. I want to underline that once again. I think you are absolutely a trailblazer. And so on that Thank note, my you. last question in the Hall of Fame, as I mentioned earlier, of the greatest lip syncs on the show. You know what? Fuck it. Let's just say de facto the greatest lip sync to ever yes, happen on Drag Race. Let's put it down. Yes. And for so many reasons, is your fabulous This Will Be. I know you've talked about it a ton, but can you take me back to that moment? Because I think what I love most about that moment in revisiting is the electricity going through your body. What happens in that moment, mm -hmm. if you're watching it, is you see this person who is giving 
everything inside of them to the performance. It's a level of artistry that you just don't see on the typical time when a performer takes the stage. It's just, it, it's, it's atypical. It is otherworldly. What was going through your mind and your body in that moment? I think just that, I mean, Natalie Cole was there. This Hello. was her song. So I was like, okay, I don't want to like mess that up. And then of course, like I'm a black queen, you know, she black. I don't want to like, you know, really like really disrespect her music when it's like, that's our music. And then my drag mother used to perform the song all the time. And so I was like, see, I had never performed that song before, but I knew that if I ever did, there were certain things that I know because, you know, I, I'm a stage person. I really like performing and I've, I guess you could say like have even in some cases had like stage etiquette training. So I know how to like hit a stage properly, you know what I mean? And so I was just trying to like do those moments, you know, because it's one take, you know? So I was trying to do those things and really like get them going. And it wasn't until I saw them with the handkerchiefs, I was like, okay. And it didn't even hit me. They were doing the handkerchiefs, honestly, until I was like done. I was like done. I was walking back and I turned around and they were just all like, and Natalie was just waving. I mean, she was just living. And I was like, like, that's when I was like, I even knew myself. I was like, no, you're a fierce girl. Like you have, you're in front of Natalie Cole. You just did her song and she is picking up a napkin and waving it in the air right now for you, girl. Like give yourself some, some credit, you know, that was like an eye opening moment for me. And then even afterwards, like the, the, the crew, the cast, they were all coming up to me. Cameramen were telling me like, that was phenomenal. Sharon Needles, I remember telling me the next day we had a day off that after that episode and we we're sitting by the pool and Sharon was like, your mother is going to be so proud of you when she sees that you did mm -hmm. so good in that performance, Vita. Like uh, people were telling me, so I already knew like, okay, I nailed it. So when this at least comes out, because I was embarrassed of having to go listen for my life, you know, like you go home if yeah. you don't do good. So like I was embarrassed and so, I I just was, I didn't really know how to take that moment in. And so recently, you know, like fans, it, realizing how much it helps fans and it makes them happy. And people listen to, you know, people say they watch it every day. They get, you know, it's, it's their gospel music. You know, it's yeah. their music yeah. that they listen to to get, so that they listen to the music and it, and it reminds them. And I see kids in high school doing the song in front of their high school friends and the friends know exactly what it is. And then they start doing the little, the little dance moves I do. and that is when it's like shocking to me. I'm like, oh my, all them high school kids know, like, you know, <laughs> that's a little like, that's a little like, that's overwhelming. You know? That's impact. I want to thank you so much. I want to end by saying, you know, you, you said something earlier that was really resonant for me. You said, you know, it's, you're not chasing fame, you want respect. And I just want to say, I respect you. And I think anyone that is listening to this podcast that has been following your journey or might be new to the journey right now, it is not a hard task after listening to you now to throw some respect at you because you are just so worthy of respect and love. And I want to encourage anyone to go back and revisit that this will be lip sync because you will learn in 30 seconds the power of this performer uh, with us today. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. Thank you, thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut your mouth, Evan. Oh, yeah, it's got to say shut up, right? Shut up your mouth. Shut up your mouth? No. Oh, shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause and social media by Sean Ross. 
An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.